Welcome to another episode of Connect Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, joined by Taryn Charma. What's up, Taryn? What's up, Dan? It's a good week. Yeah, congrats to you. You know, you had your, your debut panel with Front Office Sports. You, you and Mike, you know, standing alongside Doug Gottlieb. How, how did that feel? I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, Dan, without the uh, work that you and Wallach had done to get Conduct Detrimental to where it is, and Stephanie and, and Emily and Hannah and so many of our great contributors like Brendan. So it's uh, it's awesome to be able to uh, represent our group in a cool venue like that. The goal of Conduct Detrimental, it's not lip service. You know, it's, I don't know if people like Barstool, but the Barstool model, Dave Portnoy started it, and then he started to get bigger and bigger. And he had to trust people to, to kind of go up and flap their wings, right? Same with Bill Simmons in the ringer. But that's always been the goal is to give young lawyers and law students opportunities to contribute, publish. You know, there's only so many hours in the day. And Dan and I wanted to create a universe where people could, you know, kind of do their own thing. So we got a call from AJ Perez, friend of the show, multiple time guest of the show. And he said, do you have any people at Conduct that could speak on uh, our clubhouse panel? And Taryn, I know you, you love the space and I know Mike basically, uh, you know, he's really into it. Mike and I had done a podcast for, you know, for Syracuse on NIL and I go, Mike and Taryn would be great. So yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys killed it. 150 people watching that and you guys did great. I got calls from our friends at front office sports. I will not name them, but they thought I was going to be speaking and I'm like, no, I trust, I trust Taryn and Mike. I think they'll do a great job. And then you guys crushed it. You guys are like uh, tag team champions of Conduct Detrimental. Dan and I are like WCW champions. You like the WWE champions. How about that? I'm not sure that I know what any of that means, but I appreciate and, the sentiment. Okay, that's fine. You don't understand wrestling. It's okay. Well, maybe I'm the only one that does. You know, in honor of your appearance on Front Office Sports, I know you were in the rabbit hole of college sports, and we've been spending a lot of time on this podcast talking about pro football issues and baseball issues and maybe a little bit of basketball. But this podcast spent a lot of time last year in the lead up to the NIL hour talking about college sports. It's really always spoke about for about a month. And, you know, anytime there's a big NIL topic, like, you know, for example, we had the Darren versus Darren NIL debate. But I think every so often it's worth wading back in and talking about what's going on different in college sports. So we have a college sports heavy episode. We're also going to bring in Emily Costanza, one of our contributors to our show to break down the United States women national team settlement. It's a big one. Emily's a former Division One soccer player. So we're going to get her take on that. So really the rundown for today. Let's get into it. Then we're going to bring on Brendan Bell, our youngest contributor on Conduct Detrimental. He's a junior at Auburn. He's pre-law, he told me, and he'll talk about himself. He took his first LSAT class tonight, if you guys remember that, our listeners. And Brendan is ahead of the game. He's the guy that writes all those fun law school spotlights. Him and I are working on one for Fordham Law School right now, which will probably be out by the time you guys listen to this. He's done Tulane, Marquette, Arizona. You know, Hunter is one of our other contributors that does as well. We'll have Hunter on too at some point. Okay, so the rundown for today, a story that we did not get to hit last week that I wanted to. National Labor Relations Board coming up again, charges filed against USC, against UCLA, and the Pac-12, essentially for this whole conversation about not treating college athletes like employees. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this really, this inflection point that the NCAA is having, whether they are doing the right thing and whether student athletes, their decision to transfer or not, how much the NIL is kind of, NIL conversation is weighing in. And then third, we want to talk about a story that's really not getting reported on nationally. I, I think it's kind of big. People need to be paying attention to this. It's the conference realignment discussion. We spent a lot of time on Texas and Oklahoma. We said there will be other effects, and we're seeing them now. Conference USA in a battle with the AAC as well as the Sun Belt Conference. So three interesting cases. Now this last one, conference realignment. Marshall University has sued Conference USA for the ability to defect early. So 
maybe people aren't talking about it, but but you should. You're a sports law fan, you're a college sports fan, you should be knowing uh, what's going on. Okay, that being said, Taryn, before we get into the topics, let us remind our listeners our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the world. It's only fitting that we have Brendan on today because Brendan is a college student. And Brendan's going to go. He's going to matriculate, maybe to Harvard Law School. He's that smart. You guys are going to hear him. Maybe Yale Law School. That's it. If he doesn't go to one of those two, his life will be a disappointment. <laughs> those no. are the only two law schools. That's it. One and two. But yeah, I mean, even even the college kids, they got to know about Themis Bar Review. So Themis Bar Review, top bar prep company in the entire country. Everyone's on the Themis Bar Prep bandwagon at this point. Okay, Taryn, we ready to bring in Brendan? I think so. I'm really excited to hear from him. He's somebody who's really passionate about this, and he's been all over the conference realignment space. Without further ado, let us kick it over to Brendan Bell. Brendan, welcome to Conic Venture Method, my friend. How are you? Thank you. I'm glad to be aboard. Longtime writer, but first time podcast guest. So happy to be on. So I've told you this, similar to our, our next guest, Emily, that we'll bring on. You've caught our attention. You write not only for our website, you also write for Christy Gosh, friend of the show on, on sports business. So I'm like, who is this college kid writing for a sports law website and a sports business website? I got to learn a little bit more about him. And then you started talking to me about that you were interested in going to law school. And then, uh, you know, you were kind of talking about which sports law societies, you know, you should be looking at. And I'm like, what if we had Brendan basically from the perspective of a college student looking at these schools? Because we can only give so much advice about what schools you should apply to or like or which jobs you should apply to. But you're in the space. I didn't know anything about really. I didn't know about Tulane and Marquette and Villanova. Those are basically our big three sports programs. Maybe you throw Arizona State in there. And then Brendan, you you took to town and you and Hunter have been uh, on the path writing about the program. So I guess before we give you into the college stuff, tell our listeners a little bit about your path. Maybe your first LSAT class. Three hours a night, twice a week. I'm uh, going grinding away. But uh, tonight was first of two months of prep. So looking forward to taking that in June. But uh, yeah, so just sports have always been a big part of my life. And, you know, if you can tie in, you know, your education and what, with your passion, I think that's what everybody wants to do. To talk about our uh, sports law spotlights, I've personally done Florida, Arizona State, Georgia, and I'm working on the, the Fordham one that'll be out soon with you. Yeah, it's just a good forum for students like me and you know students who want to go to law school with with sports minded kind of interests to learn more about it because you know we all know about like IP law and contract law and you know immigration law but sports law is a growing industry and I feel like a lot of people should know about it especially they love sports and want to you know work in sports someday and just you know whether it's taking like getting a, a degree program through sports law or just joining a sports law society where you're with like-minded people. I think that's a valuable tool that, you know, students like me could use. So I'm just grateful for the platform to write about that along with other, you know, sports issues. I particularly am interested in college sports law and obviously we'll get into the, you know, the issues and all that's going on in college sports. Yeah, it's just kind of what I've been writing about on kind of detrimental and it's been an unbelievable opportunity. I'm going to embarrass you just a little bit. This is me embarrassing people today. You are way, way, way ahead of the game. I think it goes without saying as a college student, writing for different sites like i don't know i thought i was out of the game as a 1l doing it i'm very impressed so if you are a 1l and you're like maybe i should be writing brandon's making you look bad right now just just point it out okay so one other just a quick story did they make you take the diagnostic test tonight you take a practice LSAT tonight I, yeah i did take one before i showed up tonight so yes so i, I listen we're not gonna talk about LSAT scores on this but let's just say i bombed my LSAT diagnostic like bombed Big it time. and yeah. it, it terrified me 
And I'm like, okay. And then I, I literally bought those uh, U.S. News and World Books reports. And I went to the back and I'm like, okay, bomb the LSATs. What's the worst possible law school I'm going to? And I'm like, okay, I guess uh, I got to guess I got to get my grades up because uh, bomb the LSAT. So anyway, yeah, that's what they do. They scare you with the first test and then they work you up and whole process. And then I started doing, this is a, maybe a little practice tip for you, Brendan, any of our young or pre-law people. I started doing a lot of Sudoku problems and I'm like, that kind of helped me think about logic games. So that's my little pro tip for you. So let's get into the real topics. People have heard enough about our, our nonsense over here. We talked about three topics, Brendan. I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you first. The story that Taryn and I wanted to address first, the NCA has been this kind of sleeping giant. They've really done nothing. I've been on a couple panels with NCA people and they're like, Everyone kind of pushed them, hey, what's your next move? And they, they don't want to say anything. And I know, you know, I've heard reports the NCA is downsizing internally and, you know, they're not really doing much. So the question is, what is the NCA going to do? We saw a report from, you know, ABC News and I think a lot of outlets had it, but the NCA was really at this inflection point that they were starting to review transfer decisions to see how much NIL played a role. So the NCA, you know, it could be hurry up and wait. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why it's taking them so long. Brandon, we're just under a year into the NIL hour, about nine months in. Tell me what your thoughts are on the NCA's role moving forward. Yeah, I think last summer was just monumental on multiple different fronts with Alston, along with the transfer portal, along with conference realignment. It's kind of put the NCAA behind, you know, the eight ball in terms of what they can do. You know, can they really restrict NIL, you know, Austin kind of has put their hands behind their backs, you know, and with Texas and Oklahoma moving conferences and, you know, athletes moving all across the country to potentially get NIL deals. It's just a crazy time. You know, the NCAA is kind of in a spot where they don't really know what to do because they don't want to get caught behind uh, like a lawsuit or any type of legal action that would go against them. So just conferences are kind of taking more of a lead on a lot of this stuff. Conferences and you know, state laws and everything is kind of the power is shifting from the NCAA to the conferences. And uh, it's just something to see as we as we move into the future with, you know, college football playoff expansion talks with how states and schools decide on their specific NIL policies. We've seen states that have repealed their NIL policies to put their uh, schools in a more favorable position to land student athletes. So that's just something to watch. There's not one universal, you know, NCAA is looking for congressional ruling on NIL and they're just not getting it because, you know, obviously there's more important issues in the country. There's just a lack of like oversight in college athletics right now. So it's just a vacuum. I think that you're completely right that the conferences are really in the driver's seat here. And I think that it's been this way for the last couple of years, once the Power Six conferences kind of decided that the schools were going to be in charge, that's the conferences taking leadership. I think that we're in a position where the NCAA never has there been so much asked of them, so many questions on so many fronts, and so little leadership being available. So I think that the states that are trusting the NCAA interim policy, and I know that the state where you go to school, Alabama, is one of them, as they've repealed their NIL legislation because it's more stringent than the interim policy, I would be fearful in terms of trusting the NCAA. And when you consider the fact that now the NCAA, the Division One Council is going to go back and they're going to reassess NIL, who knows exactly what the, uh, the result of that is going to be, what they're going to call from that policy, what they're going to add in. So I think that we could be headed to an area of more frustration. I did want to talk to you about it. Brendan, you, you brought up a point and we probably should have made it its own topic, but you know, from a where the NCA is going and then where it's kind of been this time last year, all the states were kind of like positioning themselves. Who's going to have the NIL law on the books, right? So 
So no, I'm not going to do 100, you know, the history that you and Mike did today on, with front office boards, which was a good one. But California passes the law first. They said it's inactive in 2023. And then Florida jumps the gun. Our friend of the show, Darren Heidner, helps get that passed July 1st, 2021. So then, right, a year ago, right, February of 2021, there was kind of this rush, like states are passing these laws because they don't know, to Terrence's point, we don't know what the NCA is going to do. So at that point, there was a conversation. If you have an NIL law in the books, it will give you a recruiting advantage. So and then all of a sudden, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, we started to see all the SEC start passing these NIL laws. So now fast forward, we are now in February of 2022. Now the opposite is true. You'd rather be a state that does not have an NIL law in the books because now do whatever you want. The NCAA has basically dropped any prohibitions on athletes getting paid and being some type of punishment. So now the NCAA is basically saying, yeah, we don't have any rules on the books. And if you're in a state that doesn't have an NIL on the law in the books, there's no boundaries as to what you can't do. So Alabama, I believe, is the first state in the country to repeal their NIL law. So it was such a big advantage to have an NIL law. Now it's a disadvantage to have one. So Alabama, to no shock at anybody, two of the biggest, we'll say powerhouses in football in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, Alabama, obviously in Auburn, they're certainly in the conversation. But yeah, I mean, now that's the movement. So the question is, and I'll, you know, I guess I'll give it to you, Brandon. We'll see where you want to go with it. But I have said since the beginning of this, that the only way to have a true, fair national championship, right, is if you're not having recruiting battles decided on state law. I don't see why there is not a bigger groundswell for federal legislation. That, that To the simple point, I walk into a bar in Hawaii, I know how old I have to be to drink. Same age in Florida, same age in Arkansas, same age in Montana. It's 21. Maybe it's not the best rule, but it's a clean rule. So, Brendan, I'm going to turn it to you. What do you, what do you think the future of federal legislation is in college sports? Yeah, I think it's extremely necessary because, you know, we all know that college sports is not always on a level playing field. Like we know that Alabama competes on a different level than Akron and Akron competes on a different level than North Carolina. And we all know that it's not equitable, but at the same time, do we, do we really want schools, you know, getting the best players because of NIL and, you know, this past, you know, the signing period, obviously signing day in December and extended into February with the, the early and later signing period, we saw the first real football signing day where NIL played a big role, you know, Texas A&M, put themselves in a very good position because they leveraged it well, while other schools maybe fell behind because they're not setting up deals. We saw the University of Texas, you know, found like a charitable fund where all of their scholarship offensive linemen received $50,000. And is that what we really want to being the ultimate determinant on where players go? Like how much is NIL determining where players go? And uh, the NCAA is looking into that now. Do we really want individual state laws to be the reason why X recruit goes to X school. Yeah, I think it's necessary, uh, but is it likely? You know, I, I don't think so. You know, athletic departments, conferences, they're all looking for guidance and they're, they're just not getting it. And until there is like one universal law, I think this will continue to go on. And the, you know, the rich will continue to get richer, as I said. We're going to look at that. I mean, the NIL conversation is certainly not over, but we're going to, as, as we do as lawyers, we're going to issue spot. Taryn, that'll take us to maybe our, our second category within this NIL conversation. This battle, this unfair labor charge pertaining to USC, UCLA, you know, in the Pac-12. So, you know, the conversation that we're going to have, it's not going to happen yet. It's going to happen in a year, two years. Maybe it'll happen right now, but it's whether college athletes should be treated as employees and what fundamentally is the difference between the two. 
Taryn, tell us what's going on over on the West Coast. This is something that I've written about in the Conduct Detrimental Sports Law Review newsletter, which you know people should sign up for. It gets in your inbox every Friday. But the National College Players Association filed those unfair labor practice charges. Can you explain what that is, the National College Players Association? I don't think people have heard of that entity. It's, it's important. Yeah, it's almost like they're trying to represent themselves as a, as a player's union for collegiate athletes. That's so like that's a pseudo union. They're, they're not really a union, but like they're kind of union. Right. And this is headed up by the same person that tried to help Kane Coulter uh, unionize the Northwestern football team about five, six years ago. Obviously that got to the NLRB, but failed because the NLRB chose at that time not to rock the boat. So obviously completely different era, right? Between 2014, 2016, and today, there's been such massive upheaval in the way that the NCAA's policies apply now. So I think that this is like a a really pivotal moment where the NLRB in September, Jennifer Abruzzo, who is the general counsel of the NLRB, she published a memo that indicated that she believes that student-athletes at the college level are employees. And in fact, she said that the term student-athletes is a, a means of wage suppression, and she didn't want to hear that, that phrase anymore. So to me, that indicates that the NLRB is open to these discussions of employment status. And so now they've got two challenges in front of them, one from the National College Players Association, and then another from a, a gentleman named Michael Sue, HSU, who is from here in Minnesota, and he's an athlete advocate. So this is going to be a long challenge. There's 18 months almost uh, uh, what experts expect once the charge is filed to when we'll have a decision. I think that the most interesting thing that we might see in the interim, the NLRB has subpoena power. So maybe if they are able to subpoena some of the, the the crucial players here, whether that's Mark Emmert, whether that's the, the conference heads or the heads of, of major universities, It might be interesting to hear their take on it, but what I wrote in the newsletter and what I want to make really clear is that this can go really wrong if we rush into some sort of employer-employee relationship without addressing how that's going to affect the concept, the market of college sports that we love. I, I think at some base level, we really love college sports, and so we want to see it sustained, and we also want student athletes to have more rights, and we want them to be able to earn money based on their the hard work that they're putting in. So I think that those key stakeholders really have to get into a room together, whether that's uh, the conferences deciding, is the NCAA the best way to go forward? The, the players deciding, do they want to be a union and how do they want to collectively bargain? These are conversations that have to be had together and and doing it in a piecemeal fashion is kind of how we're going to end up with a piecemeal result. So you talk about collective bargaining. I think what people need to understand, we can't say this any more clear, if players and particular teams, right, in particular sports are given the right to strike and the right to have collective bargaining discussions, there is certainly a world where football players will not want the revenue they generate to go to other sports. Right. That's how uh, college sports economics works, essentially, right now. Football makes the most money and to another extent, basketball. And those profits are sprinkled throughout the schools. So, you know, if I'm the father of a college football player, I don't really care how much money the swimming program gets or the wrestling program gets. I want my son, right, just like we're Taryn, you and I are going to talk about it later. But Major League Baseball is having this, you know, these labor discussions right now. 
50% of the pie. That's always what baseball players are going to want. Maybe they'll want more. But imagine dividing the revenue pie up, you know, for football to get half the revenue. And then, you know, the ADs only have half of that pie to sprinkle throughout. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's not going to be something like NIL, which has universal approval. The right for college athletes to strike, to, for, to be locked out, to be fired, you know, and, and maybe hurt other sports. That's not going to have universal approval. Brendan, I know this, the, you, you follow this stuff here. Certainly, you know, you're not in law school yet, but I know you're familiar with collective bargaining. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, collective bargaining kind of has a bad – I'm a baseball fan like, like many of us, and that's obviously driving us all crazy. But in college sports, I mean, if, if college football players in particular are deemed employees, then, like, the issues at hand could be extremely broad. You know, baseball and you know the NFL, MLB, NHL. You know, it's all contracts and you know stuff like that. But we're, in college collective bargaining, we could be talking about like the amount of food they receive or the amount of like amenities they get, where they live, all the other stuff. Because you know, as we know, student athletes, it's more than just the sport they play. It's the education. It's their where they live. It's you know their books. All that stuff is accounted for. And if you make them employees, then all that stuff goes to the table. And so do college athletes at the end of the day want to be deemed employees because a lot of the stuff they get right now just, you know, implied for if you play football for Auburn University, you live here, you get this amount of food, you get you get all of the books paid for all that stuff. You know, will that be the case? If you're deemed an employee and all that stuff will be collective bargaining. In addition, you know, the transfer portal has kind of created an idea where coaches are saying it's free agency. But, but if they're employees, are there other contracts stipulating you have to stay at a school for this amount of years? And if you leave, you have, you owe this or uh, you, you must, you know, do this. So college athletes and college football players in particular being deemed employees is a slippery slope that, you know, sounds good in theory, but when you really bear, uh, you know, you know, consider all the factors that go into it. It could be a huge ordeal for college football and the in the College Football Players Association. If you're people looking for paper topics to write about, I would highly recommend any portion of, of this student athletes as employees conversation. Actually, um, we're not really allowed to call college athletes student athletes anymore. I guess that's a, a term that's going to be extinct uh, at some point if you ask the NLRB. Okay. So let us move over to our, our final segment of this college sports conversation. I'm trying to think when this was. I know it was while I was teaching my class. So I don't know. It was, it was around the fall. There was a conversation about Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12. And that doesn't really happen. You don't have two blue bloods jumping conferences. So we said you have the Power Five. And if you have two of the top schools in one of the Power Five conferences, that's the Big 12, moving over to the SEC. The SEC, though, all of a sudden goes to 16 teams. You know, that's kind of an odd look. And I think that brought the the big 12 down to 10 teams, that point, maybe even eight teams. I think it's actually brought them down to eight at that point. So then, okay, you have to say, well, what's going to happen here? This is this sound very confusing for our non-college sports fans. But the Big 10 at that point uh, it still has 14 schools. The Big 12 had eight schools. As confusing as it is, just bear with us. They had less schools than 16. Pac-12, I'm not even going to start on that, but everyone has less schools than the SEC. So if the Power Five want to keep pace with the SEC, they start needing to pull schools from other conferences. So lo and behold, that's kind of what happened. For the Big 12 to stay afloat, they had to steal some schools, and then the schools, the conference that they stole from had to steal from another conference, and they had to bring some schools up from the FCS to the FBS. So it's, it's kind of a cluster, and we're still seeing the ramifications of that now, you know, six months later. So what we have is this conference realignment battle that's still going on. We had a lawsuit that was filed yesterday by Marshall University against Conference USA, 
Brendan, I know you are in Auburn now, but you are from Dallas. That's where Conference USA is headquartered. Before we get into the legalese, why Marshall is suing a conference for the right to leave. If you can, as best as you can, why don't you give us a little bit of the lay of the land in some of these mid-major conferences? Okay, so as we mentioned before, the like the last summer where you know we got NIL, we got transfer portal, and like the biggest bomb was te- bombshell was Texas and OU leaving the Big Twelve for the SEC. No one expected it. It halted playoff expansion talks. It changed all that. However, the Big Twelve. So kind of how it worked was a domino effect. Like the Big Twelve losing their two flagship members needed to fill the spots, and so they went after. BYU, who was independent, so they kind of were – they didn't have a conference affiliation before. But the bigger deal was they added Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF from the American Conference, which was widely regarded as the best group of five conference below the Power Five. Obviously, Cincinnati made the college football playoffs last year, so you know their football success, and UCF has been in the New Year's Six and is along with Houston. And so that left the the American Conference needing to go find members. So the American reached out to six Conference USA members, University of Alabama, Birmingham, University of North Texas, Charlotte, Florida Atlantic, Rice, and UTSA, who were obviously members of the the, uh, Conference USA uh, League. And so that took six of the original 14 off the Conference USA. And sensing that the Conference USA was in a weak position, the Sunbelt Conference took three additional members from that conference, Old Dominion, Marshall, and Southern Miss. Well, I'm so, going to stop you for a second. They didn't really take them, right? This is, we're, we're, in a, we're in a position of limbo right now. They're attempting to take them. Yeah, so they, they will eventually take them, but... Well, well, do we know that? I think eventually it'll happen. But it, when it happens is the question that we're getting into in this, in this segment. Brandon, let me paint the picture of the legal battlefield. And I want to, I'm going to rely on you for a little bit of the math here. And you, you broke it down very well. Here's what's happening right now. For our, our lawyers here, they're trying to figure out, you know, the procedural posturing of this. Marshall, Old Dominion, and Southern Miss announced their intention to leave the conference. Under the conference's laws, schools have to provide 14 months notice in order to leave. The problem is those three schools did not want to provide 14 months for whatever reason. The six schools that Brendan talked about that are leaving for, Brendan, the AAC, am I going to get this right? Yes, the American Athletic Conference. They're leaving in 2023. So they've, they've decided, you know, there's nine schools in total trying to bolt from Conference USA. I don't know why everyone hates Conference USA. I, I think Conference USA is, nice. USA is a nice place, but everyone wants to leave. Six schools are bouncing and they're dealing, they're adhering to these 14 month notice. And these three schools are not. So Marshall says, hey, we're leaving. Southern Miss says, hey, we're leaving. Old Dominion says, hey, we're leaving. Goodbye. Conference USA puts out a statement and essentially says, actually, here's the schedule for the upcoming year. We're putting Marshall in the schedule, Southern Miss, Old Dominion, and these schools know they have contractual obligations and they have to stay in the conference. So it puts Sunbelt, the conference they were trying to go to in a in tough position. Do they release their schedule and put Marshall in there? It's this whole kind of will they, won't they? So what happens last week, there is a demand for arbitration sent by Conference USA to Marshall, and I imagine to also to Southern Miss uh, and to Old Dominion saying, hey, we're actually going to try to resolve this with you amicably. You are not allowed to leave because we said 14 months notice. We have to find a suitable replacement for you. So we're going to put this into arbitration. Marshall says, we're not going to arbitration. And I imagine arbitration would have been in Dallas, Texas. That's where Conference USA is headquartered. Marshall goes, we are suing you 
in the state of West Virginia. That's our home territory. We're not going to arbitration in a, in a whatever form you want us to. So that's where we are right now. Marshall is suing for a declaratory judgment and for an injunction against Conference USA. They don't want to go to arbitration. They want this thing to be fought. Brendan, you're our college guy here. Why can't Marshall, Southern Miss, right, an Old Dominion, why can't they just cut a check to Conference USA? I'm, I'm missing that part. That's the issue that a lot of people are wondering because, you know, many people believe that the, the remedy in this case is the exit fee that these three member schools that will pay. However, the exit fee in the Conference USA is not as high as it is in the American Athletic, which is why that these three members, uh, ODU, Marshall, and Southern Miss, think that they're, you know, they're good. They're just going to pay this and leave now because, you know, as we know, staying in a conference that you're going to leave is just such a, it's such a weird thing. Like how long Texas and Oklahoma are going to be in the Big 12? They're going to get, you know, when they go on the road, it's going to be hostile environments. It's just a bad situation for everyone involved. So common rationale is just like, you know, why don't you just let them, let them leave? But the Conference USA is like, no, you're going to stay. Your contract, like our contract, our conference bylaws say you must stay unless you give us 14 months notice. But these three schools are like, they're ready to go. Conference USA is in a really vulnerable position right now. They did add four additional members that will come in after they leave. But uh, the state of the 2022 season is just in, in flux because you've got you've got schools who are going to be up against it to determine, you know, it's like, obviously football comes in in September, hotels need to be booked. You know, it's not easy to travel with 85 scholarship players and all the support staff and coaches. I think Conference USA is once an injunction to be filed in court, it'll be interesting to see what they are, they, if they're able to get that. Many people think this will end in settlement and Old Dominion, Marshall and Southern Miss will end up in the Sun Belt in 2022. You know, it's a pressing issue right now because time is of the essence. Yeah, I think the universities are hoping to get that injunction so that they can just get this sorted out and and avoid having to go to arbitration. But something that you mentioned, Dan, in terms of where this case was filed, said uh, in West Virginia, Marshall filing this in their home county is just like a fun little example of forum shopping where, uh, you know, they know that they're going to get that home cooking and who knows, maybe the judge went to Marshall or something like that. It, it's just a, a fun way to, to kind of stack the deck for yourself. Yeah, it's 100%. And I, and I think we'd be remiss if I, if I didn't say this here. I don't think this is a application by Conference USA about money. I kind of teed you up, right? at least my thought on this. I don't think there's an, an, a check that Marshall could write to Conference USA at this point. Conference USA is arguing, we are down to nine teams. We might not exist anymore. The vultures are circling. They might try to steal more of our programs. You can cut us a check for how much you want. But if another school leaves and we don't replace it, we might not exist anymore. And that's what happened with Bob Ballsby in the Big 12 this time last year. The guy sent a cease and desist letter, you know, not to, not to Sankey over in SEC, the commissioner of the SEC. He sent it to ESPN. And he said, we hear that you guys are involved in stealing our teams. So I'm like, wow, this guy's going scorched earth. He's going after ESPN. That's pretty crazy. And then I thought of it. I'm like, Bob Bowlesby is the commissioner of the Big 12. Can't be a conference commissioner if the conference doesn't exist. And I think that was a really smart move by Bowlesby to lay down the hammer and basically just say, hey, I don't care what I'm going to do at this point. I'll, I'll go after you for tortious interference with the contract. So people are saying, why has this never happened before? What Bob Bowlesby did has never happened before. And I think Conference USA is seeing that they don't want to lose control so easily and watch another team try to leave with less than 14 months notice. So it's probably, you could probably survive it with these three teams down to nine. But if you're remaining nine schools, they try to pull a marshal 
and bounce on you, right? Uh, all of a sudden, the conference has six teams, five teams, and then all of a sudden, right, the Big East that no longer exists in football, right? It's happened before. It's happened in the re- in, in recent memory. Okay, Brendan, I'm going to let you have the last words on Conference USA, and then we're going to bid uh, bid farewell to you, my friend. What do you, what do you got for us? So what's really interesting about all of this is right before the American and Sunbelt Conference, you know, announced that they were adding these members, the Conference USA Conference Commissioner sent a letter to the Commissioner of the American Athletic and the Sunbelt Conference asking for a joint, you know, alliance, kind of what we saw with the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac-12. But obviously those two conferences were in the works to add those other members. So it's really interesting because Conference USA about a decade ago was the premier, you know, non-power conference It had. You know, Houston, SMU, UCF all used to be in Conference USA. Well, the Sunbelt Conference, you know, opted for, you know, local, smaller fan bases, but were passionate about football. And Conference USA based in a lot of, you know, large media markets like like Rice, Alabama, Birmingham, FAUs in the Boca Raton area. So they're in a lot of, you know, big media markets, which was like the big deal in the last round of Conference Realignment. But now the big deal is having, you know, passionate fan bases. And while the Sun Belt might not have, you know, the big media markets like a, like a Dallas or, a, or Houston or any of that, they have passionate fan bases in smaller communities like Statesboro, Georgia, and Boone, North Carolina. They might not have like the, the big time, you know, media centric, like television markets. They just have passionate fans. And that's winning the day right now. The Sun Belt is positioning itself to be one of the best group of five conferences. And uh, they'll be competing for a potential, you know, expanded playoff spot when we get there. So it's just kind of an interesting time in, in the group of five world. Brendan, we're going to bring you back on when we t- start having these conversations about expanded college football playoffs, because I know that's probably the next legal battle. Brendan, thank you for joining us. And uh, look out for Brendan's next article on Conduct Detrimental about Fordham Sports Law, maybe the first competition dynasty in sports law history. How about that? Brendan, thanks again, my friend. Thanks for having me on. So that was Brendan Bell. Brendan has been so helpful to us, you know, on the website. And again, I don't know, if you want to feel bad about where you are in life, Brendan, as a junior at Auburn, is already writing for two websites. So I'm, I'm uh, impressed. I don't know what the future holds for Brendan. Certainly, it is very bright. We mentioned at the top, we had college sports stories. We wanted to talk about soccer. Emily Costanzo, she is, again, one half of Misconduct with Stephanie Weisselberger. Emily is a soccer nut. She uh, is always, you know, when you look at the stuff that Emily writes, it's usually soccer-based. And I knew Emily would have um, some good takes on this. Absolutely. I love her passion. I think that's the word, passion. Without further ado, let us kick it over to Emily Costanzo. Emily, we thought to call you, our listeners that don't know, Emily Costanzo is one half of Misconduct with Stephanie Weissenberger, who our listeners do know. Emily's been on the pod with us before doing some Cleveland Guardian stuff. Emily is a former Division I soccer player at UConn. And when I saw the big news, the settlement between the women's national team and U.S. soccer, I knew that Emily would know. I knew that Emily would be uh, having some hot takes on this. So, Emily, first, welcome to Conic Detrimental. Your first time as a real guest. How about that? I know it's it's actually pretty exciting. I'm sad it took me took you this long to invite me on. Um, <laughs> wow. So Emily is about five cups of coffee deep, five and a half, we'll say. In Emily's background, she has a a crazy kind of like corkboard esque like Claire Danes and Homeland. I don't know what you are doing, but I respect that in the middle of your brief writing, you stopped. You're like, you know what? I got to inform the listeners of Conic Detrimental about this soccer settlement. So Emily, the floor is yours. You can go in any direction when you want with this answer. What is the, your big takeaway from this massive settlement between U.S. soccer 
and the United States women's national team. What I want to start with is that this is a win for women's soccer. This is a win for women's sports. I think that it's going to be met with criticism because that's just the way our media works. And we are not at the end of this journey by any means, but this is a tremendous, tremendous win. I know there's been a little bit of backlash. Hope Solo's come out and said some things about the settlement, which we'll touch on later. But basically, just so the listeners have a background, this settlement has not been finalized yet. It's contingent on the U.S. Women's National Team signing their CBA with U.S. Soccer. But if that goes through, we're looking at $24 million settlement for the women. Let's do a little bit of brief background. And and that was a good, good place to start. So for those that don't know, U.S. Soccer and the United States Women's National Team those two entities, if you're saying like, why is U.S. soccer fighting with each other? It's an interesting lawsuit. The impetus is lawsuit. It's a six-year battle. It's a three-year litigation battle. So my understanding, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You are Miss Yukon, right? Weren't you voted like the Gatorade Soccer Player of the Year? Oh, yeah. Multiple times. Multiple, multiple times. times in multiple states. First person I, ever to do it. Right. I left my trophies at home, but it's fine. Okay. So th- this is this is my understanding of what happened, right? The men's national team is making more money. This was historically. They're making more money than the women, despite the fact um, and I know you're looking at me because I, I, hold on, I, I know what's going on here, okay? But we'll say per game, the men were making more money while the women were going on and winning World Cups while the men weren't even, you know, at least in the most recent cycle, weren't even making the World Cup. So, and can you break this down, like this kind of, you know, just this dichotomy between men's and women's soccer, how this battle has gone over the last six years, how the narrative has changed, and why women were earning less than men if they were the more superior team, just in terms of on-field performance. Right. So the main, the first answer to that is that although both the men's national team and the women's national team are both under that U.S. soccer umbrella, per their current CBAs, they agreed to two different pay structures. So the men agreed to just a typical pay for play. You get called up to the national camp, you get money. You get minutes, you get money. Whereas the women agreed to a more concrete agreement and that they have 16 players who get a yearly salary of 100k from u.s soccer and then the rest of the players on the roster so about six to eight depending they will get that typical pay for play model so based on their concrete setup on the front end that was how the discrepancy in the money occurred initially and they discussed this in the in the first round of the lawsuit which dan i know we'll talk about but the women pushed back on the court and said, you have to look at the rate that they're being paid, not just the standard amounts. Okay, that's fair. And I think what ended up happening, this is at least my my rudimentary understanding of the lawsuit, is that by the end of the lawsuit, the women had actually started to make more than the men. And that's partially because the men didn't make the World Cup tournament. So it kind of hurt their argument a little bit, right? And that's what I was saying in that the women pushed back on the court and said, we had to win more and we had to play more. So it's it's kind of, it was kind of an apples and oranges argument that, well, yes, we're making more because we're playing longer, we're advancing farther and they're not. And then again, on the World Cup stage, which is one of the massive parts of this settlement was that U.S. soccer has come out in this settlement and said that they agreed to pay the men and the women an equal amount of friendly money and tournament money, which includes notably the World Cup. Okay. So I have one more question. I know Taryn has a, has a couple of questions for you on uh, on your girl, Hope Solo. And I'm, I'm only, you're, I'm half joking. Emily, the reason I wanted to have you on, you, you get really fiery about certain topics. This is a positive thing. I, I do as well, but I know this topic is near and dear to you. The U.S. soccer 
president has changed during the course of this lawsuit. And I think part of the reason this lawsuit gets settled is because of that change in leadership. Very much an open-ended question, you know, at a really high level. Can you explain to our listeners what went on in U.S. soccer and really kind of how we got here? We kind of had a change of leadership in the middle of all this, and then all of a sudden the lawsuit gets resolved. So, I, you know, I think that's a pretty important facet of this lawsuit. Yes. So first of all, it wasn't all of a sudden, but I, I do take your point. And Cindy Parlo Cohn is the current president, and she's awesome. Also notably, she was a player and further notably, the current players are aligning much stronger with her than they are with the previous president, who is Carlos Cordera. When did Carlos switch? When was this? Because so I, he, res- he resigned and I'm quote resigned in March 2020 because so that was a year after the lawsuit that we know today came out. So the first filing was March 8th, 2019. And a year later, March 2020, the meat of the lawsuit in the in the specific language used in some of the briefs started hitting mainstream media. Now, Carlos, Mr. Cordero was was president at that time. And part of the language that came out that the U.S. soccer was arguing in their briefs were they were saying things like, and I and I remember this to this day, they were saying things like the women's national team players do not perform equal work requiring equal skill and effort in comparison to the men. They said that the overall soccer playing ability required at the senior men's level is influenced by things such as strength and speed. And essentially it was perceived to be incredibly sexist. It was perceived to be knocking the women down despite all of their success. And then that language gets out, and I don't know the specific timeline, but it was weeks, if not days later, we hear that Carlos is retiring. And and Cindy Parlo Cohn, who is still the president now, stepped in to, to fill his shoes. You know, so I'll, I'll just say this, and then Taryn, I'll hand it over to you. The, the optics, right, of the United States women's national team fighting with U.S. soccer is not good. And then when Cindy Parlo Cohn takes over, right, all of a sudden, the optics have now changed, right? So- you know, sometimes, and I, again, I just say it to say it, right? Like men can be really pigheaded and just fight for the purpose of fighting, right? And this lawsuit seemed to have taken a very different track. I remember when she took over, she made a statement that they were going to try to make resolving this lawsuit a priority. Right. And in the court, in the court system, you know, U.S. soccer had started to win and started to have the, have the upper hand as we moved all far further along. But this case is settled to send a message, right? Like, U.S. soccer shouldn't be fighting with the women's national team, right? There's, it's more important than that, right? Right. And, and I totally agree in that. And you're right in saying that Cohn came on the stage and said, we want to get the CBA ratified and we want to, we are attacking the equal pay issue. And she said that from the jump, you know, people, articles everywhere are really saying that this is a promise kept on her behalf and it's, behalf and it's huge. That's not to say, obviously, of course, a male could be an incredibly successful president of U.S. soccer. But the fact of the matter is, it's it's what you just said, Dan, is there are two entities that should be on the same team, no pun intended, and they've been fighting with each other for years. So now the hope is we look at this lawsuit with the recognition that we're nowhere near done. It's just a, it's just a step in the right direction. Hopefully that's a step that for the first time in six years, U.S. soccer and U.S. women's national team and the men's team can take that step, all three of them moving forward together, which is huge. And not for nothing, Carlos Cordera is running for re-election to president of U.S. soccer, which those are being held March, first week of March, which is insane, insane. And multiple notable athletes, Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, et cetera, et cetera, female athletes have come out and said, no, he doesn't have our vote because why would he? 
And I just wish he wasn't running at all, but I also would not mind to see him have a painful loss. Speaking of people who ran for U.S. soccer president, Hope Solo had run in 2018 and and she came out. Yeah. And (laughs) lost. And she came out today and said that this settlement, very different from what you said, is not a huge win. It's heartbreaking and infuriating. Those are her words. Can you shed some light on why she might feel that way? And if that actually captures the sentiment of more than just her? So in short, no, the overwhelming majority of notable names in women's soccer, which so Hope Solo filed along with four other athletes, Becky Sauerbrunn, Murpino, Alex Morgan and Carly Lloyd, which are all names we know, filed a complaint in 2016 with the EEOC, also alleging the same type of complaint in that it was gender discrimination on the basis of pay. So anyway, that lawsuit evolved into what it is today, but all four of the remainder have all spoken out very publicly and said, this is phenomenal. This is a great step in the right direction for women's soccer. It's important to say that no, none of these athletes are saying, oh, Women's soccer and men's soccer are equal and everything's great and no problems at all. And we're rainbows and daisies in the world of soccer. That's not what they're saying. They're saying this is a meaningful step forward. And Hope's problem with the settlement, honestly, I think it's a really juvenile response on her behalf because she's focusing on the fact that, which is true, that this settlement is contingent upon the ratification of the CBA. But the whole point of why this settlement is getting so much attention is because all the powers that be all signs are pointing to yes, that this CBA is ratified. So, I mean, heartbreaking yeah. and infuriating. Not really. This looks like this could be resolved by the end of March. I can kind of sense that this seems like sour grapes. So to her point, though, about the CBA, I think you mentioned the CBA has been, it had expired at the end of December, but it's been extended until the end of March. So do you think that this is going to be an easy process or is this something like Major League Baseball lockout where we can expect like a big delay and and further problems that are going to complicate the settlement. So in short, I think I wouldn't say easy, but I think that the the bulk of the work has been done. And again, if the powers that be are as smart as I hope they are, they're going to ride this wave And because they've come out publicly, they being the president, the players, et cetera, et cetera, have come out publicly and said, yo, end of March is our goal. And that's the goal that we have to sign this thing and get moving and move forward. Also, too, Taryn, that I think is really important is this. We are living in the most monumental era of women's sport ever. And that's not even arguable. I really don't think it is. And that's indicative in, you know, Becky Sauron came out today and said, you know, we can't do this without the 99ers, who are the famous women's soccer 99 team. We can't do this without the WNBA. We can't do this without Serena and Venus Williams. There's so much attention on women's sport and such a push to advance the games that I think that, again, from purely from a business standpoint, ride this wave, sign the CBA and move forward. And also not for nothing, but the men's team is from my to my understanding is incredibly supportive which is, which is going to be huge for this because it's their CBA as well. And obviously you broke that down in only the way that you could. I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass you with this story. So I speak to a lot of law students. I speak to a lot of college students as a Brendan Bell. I might've had my favorite call with a student with you, Emily. Do you know what I'm about to say? Do you, do you remember this phone call? I think I might, Dan. So Emily, uh, you know, we, we had the conic detrimental.com era. We invited a lot of people to write for us. And, you know, we had this wave of articles that people were writing. And Emily I just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Like the day we announced, like, you know, we're starting the era. Emily wrote me this really nice LinkedIn message. And then just somehow in the shuffle, I missed it. 
I missed this really nice, long, beautiful message. And I think I came back two, three weeks later and I'm like, oh my God, like I missed this. So, you know, I said, oh, Emily, I'll get you set up writing. And, and I read the note. It was really sweet and it was really heartfelt. And then Emily starts writing like article after article after article after article. I'm like, who is this Emily Costanzo person? So I made it a point to speak to her and I'm like, you know, the, the message that she wrote was was really nice and, and heartfelt. And the articles that she were writing were written with a style that I could feel her voice speaking to me on the page. And I'm like, okay, this person's a good writer, speaks well, division one college athlete. I'm like, let's talk to Emily. So I, I called Emily on the way home from work. That's when I make a lot of my phone calls as Taryn, you know. And Emily, for we'll say over under about half an hour, basically proceeded to to sell me on how she was like the future of like the world. Like that just Emily, I, I'm like, I'll vote for Emily for president at this point. Like, I just, I feel this passion burning from her. And, uh, you know, uh, that's what you get, you know, in this podcast here. And that's Emily, why we tapped you for, for misconduct. So I guess the, the lesson, I'll give you the platform. You know, like I, you and I don't know each other. We are not from the same state. We have nothing. And I'm like, I had two conversations with you. And I'm like, I got to find something to do with Emily. I have to find somewhere to place her in this weird, weird universe that we have. It's just a very, uh, you're a very passionate person. Emily, now you're working for the United States Soccer League. You know, you, you, I, I sensed it. I sensed the energy right away. Listen, I, Dan, you, you, I'm blushing. I really am. But you are. We're on video right now. You no, I, I am. I was going to say, I know this is turning into a podcast, but can confirm that may or may not be the over under five coffees, but whatever, we'll call it blushing. <clears throat> Seven. But <laughs> anyway, it's been an incredible opportunity to work with you guys. And, and Taryn's over here telling me not to bang on the table because I just get so hyped up on this stuff. You do. You do. So audience, if you can hear me banging on the table, I do apologize. I'm an Italian so, and I talk with my hands. No, I love the talking with the hands. Anytime that somebody is very passionate about a subject, it really warms my heart. And fantastic job. We have some big stuff in store for you, which you know about, which uh, the world will know about soon. And thank you for joining us and we'll speak soon. Thank you guys for having me. Honestly, I love talking to Emily about this stuff. I just think Emily is so passionate. Emily competed in our New York law school soccer competition. She goes to me beforehand. She goes, Dan, I'm going to win this thing. I'm going to take it down. I'm going to do Connick Detrimental Proud. You know, Emily didn't win, but not, it's not for lack of effort. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> I, you know, we have different, uh, I've worked with a lot of different associates and I've trained junior associates, but it's always good to see someone with this like can-do attitude with Emily. So, uh, yeah, I, I love that Emily's uh, decided to join us on this lovely adventure of Connick Detrimental. Taryn, what do you, you think of, uh, of Emily's comments on, on, uh, on the settlement and Hope Solo, all the fun stuff? Yeah, I thought she was great. And typically they say uh, when you don't have the facts, you bang the table. But she had the facts and she banged the table. <laughs> uh, she's like Brandon Marshall. Except Brandon Marshall doesn't have the facts. You're like one of only a handful of people that knows that reference. Okay. As we put this episode in the books, you know, we we wanted to cover this episode. It's kind of like a potpourri episode. We don't want this podcast to just be the NFL sports law podcast. There are sports law issues in any, in any and all walks of life. Okay. So, Taryn, I'm going to let you kick us off. What to watch for? What do you got? So MLB says, uh, what, uh, February 28th is kind of like the, the witching hour. If we don't have an agreement between the union and the uh, league by that point, then we're not going to have a full slate of baseball and they're not going to uh, pay out the, the full rate of salary. So 
Yeah, it, that's very worrisome to me. We're already into the time when pitchers and catchers would have reported, and we just haven't really made much progress. There's still huge gaps in terms of uh, what the minimum salary is going to be. And then Jeff Passan brought up a great point today on Twitter. I highly urge everyone to read his thread about the competitive balance tax, the luxury tax. You should really understand that that's going to be a key sticking point. And, and we haven't even really gotten to that yet. So I'm not sure what's going to happen, Dan. And I'm worried because, you know, we both love baseball. We love baseball and we might not have it. And the great thing about baseball is that it's there every day. And even if it lets you down one day, it can can pick you back up the next day. So I would be really, really sad if we didn't have the season. It's not looking good. I'm going to give you a quick shout, which we did not talk about on the podcast. And I think you half know the story. Taryn, I was in the middle of an all-day deposition on Zoom, and one of my friends goes, who is Taryn Sharma, and why does he think that spring training is going to be pushed? I'm like, what did Taryn do? This is a good friend of mine. And I see Taryn breaking, spring training, pushed back, whatever it was, March 5th. And I go, Taryn, do you have a source? No one else is reporting this. And you're like, I used to work in baseball. I might have a source or two up my sleeve. I, you're looking at me like I'm going to reveal your source. I am not. Taryn beat Jeff Passan, friend of the show, and Bob Nightingale, friend of the show. Beat all of our friends, Taryn. And sometimes the little guy gets scooped. So I got to give you, you want to plug yourself, right? You got, you're doing the uh, strength emoji. There you go. Um, <laughs> my what to watch for story coming out of basketball. Kyrie Irving is one step closer to being a full-time player. New York City Mayor uh, Eric Adams says that he cannot wait to roll back the current COVID-19 vaccine mandate for indoor spaces. And you know, no, I, we're not really going to get into a lot of COVID, COVID stuff and back stuff. But as of right now, it's an interesting law that basically says that Kyrie Irving can play road games, but he can't play home games. And if Kyrie Irving can play home games, all of a sudden that makes the Brooklyn Nets a much more of a force in the Eastern Conference. So my what to watch for is the Nets coming back at full strength. Ben Simmons is going to come back at some point. If Kyrie Irving is going to be uh, the, the team of misfit toys. And you guys know I like the betting odds a little bit. I don't mind parlaying these futures. Uh, let's say Danny Medvedev to win Wimbledon and the Nets to win the Eastern Conference. How about that, Karen? How about that? I like it. I wouldn't mind seeing either of those things. Those are two sports all ones. That is, uh, those are my Novak props. I got a lot of lot of parlays that have to do with Novak. And sports betting is legal in New York, so I'm allowed to talk about it. I saw that Hal Corver was teaching Ben Simmons how to shoot today. So maybe that's also a positive for the Nets. Plenty of positives for the Nets, but we shall see. Okay, that'll put this episode in the books. I am at Sports Law Lust. Wallach is at Wallach Legal. Taryn is at TK Sharma Law. Mike, who did a great job on the front office sports panel today, is at Mike underscore son of underscore law. For everyone, Conduct Detrimental, Brendan, Emily, and anybody else that wants to join the gang, we will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. <laughs>